if you understand who your audience is and you understand the promise you're making to them, it allows you to optimize your offering around them. It allows you to keep them for a long time, build loyalty and trust and expand the relationship over time. Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We take a weekly look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. So I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. Before we get into anything, please do look out for our latest Conversations episode this week, which features insight from Eurosport and Podinstall about how you can transform your evergreen content into podcasts with all the prestige and revenue that comes with that. So do listen out for that. We're polishing that up. It's going to go out this Wednesday. And that extract you heard from my interview with Robbie Kelman Baxter. Robbie literally wrote the book on the membership economy and has a new book out on building compelling subscription offerings. She started working with membership and subscription models with Netflix where they were still sending out DVs. Do you remember that, kiddies? What's a DVD? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And she's now, this is the exciting bit, she's now involved in a direct-to-consumer event with her good friends over at Fit. Very nice. Well, we have that to look forward to. But before that, we have a rich seam of weekly news to push through. And we're going to begin by discussing, God, something that I think (laughs) might actually enrage me a little bit as we go along. So Press Gazette's Freddie Mayhew is reporting that UK publishers are facing losing hundreds of millions in display ad revenue when Google switches off third-party cookies. Esther, can you just give us a, a quick bite-sized potted history of what is actually going on there with third-party cookies? Okay, so Google announced, was it last year or was yep. it 2019? No, it was. Uh, it must have been 2019 because feels part like of hundreds why, of years ago. But part of why I'm annoyed about this is it feels like the, the publishers have had a long time to deal with this. Sorry, I just said Google and my phone was just like, hello, <laughs> can we help? No. Um, so Google basically said, um, we don't think third-party cookies are good for the um, internet ecosystem anymore, so we're going to phase them out by 2022 um, with kind of very little plan about what else would fill their place. Now, um, come on, come on. Well, come to be on. fair to Google... To be fair to Google, Safari and Firefox and whoever else had already kind of blocked them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I remember the time. So, yeah, 2019, uh, Firefox were like, we're going to be the privacy-first browser. We're going to block all third-party cookies. Apple were kind of like, oh, yeah, we really care about privacy too. We can collect all of our users' information in our own ecosystems. We don't need them either. So we're also going to make Safari privacy first. At which point Google is then there kind of like, well, we can't be the only one that's not. Mm. So towards the end of 2019, like people spotted they were testing this third-party cookie option. And yeah, they basically just 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 kind of dropped the bomb in 2020 that, that, that they were going to drop them entirely. But I think people were expecting a bit more of a kind of option to switch them off or something but no they, they were just like yeah we're going to just kind of turn them off yeah i think actually something we need to mention now is we are aware that google is doing this because it has a competitive interest in doing so it is not doing it purely out of the goodness of its heart <laughs> oh, really? that, yeah i think we just need to acknowledge that because now we can talk about what impact this is going to have on publishers so, the Competition and Markets Authority reported in July last year that UK digital display ad spend reached £5.5 billion in the UK in 2019, half spent with Facebook and another 10% with Google. Unfortunately, as a consequence of that, um, Press Gazette are reporting that their 
there are fears that we're, quote, hurtling towards the edge of a cliff because it's going to cut around, oh my God, well, it's hundreds of millions in display ad revenue. As a I, I have a big problem with this headline. Okay, well. <laughs> the, rep- the way that this was reported is that UK publishers earned around 70% less revenue overall when they were unable to use third-party cookies to sell personalised advertising, but competed against others who could. Now, if they're switching it off entirely, everybody is then on the same kind of really crappy level playing field. Um, and I know that there are arguments that, yes, Google's got its own ecosystem and stuff, but it's not like publishers are going to suddenly have this problem that they didn't know was coming up and they're going to be the only ones at a disadvantage. Like yeah. Everybody is at the same disadvantage. And Google, with the best one in the world, is trying to put in things to fix it. Well, uh, who's yeah. the best role in the world in that sense? <laughs> I was going to say fix is, uh, fix is doing a lot of work in that sentence. And, and also... Third-party cookies are a really, really crappy thing mm. to be selling data against. That no one is arguing with that. Yeah. So, That's so in a sense, if you're there, like, oh, we're going to lose hundreds of millions of pounds, it's like find a smaller violin. <laughs> I think you know the one good thing that will come from this. Well, there's a couple of good things. Hopefully, that'll come from it. One is the worst of the ad tech companies will go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They'll be bought <laughs> up, or they'll just disappear and. And that, you know, that awful, awful, awful retargeting pyramid Ponzi Mm. scheme of retargeting will disappear to some extent, at least. You you, you want toaster? Do you want toaster? Do you want toaster? Do you want toaster? Yeah, go on! And the other thing is that publishers with a brain will develop their own first-party data and their own solutions and they'll work with decent networks or they'll create their own networks and we'll move on. The so whole so industry will move on. Yeah, it's this this is my problem with this, is that it's it's almost a sort of, well, look, this money's going away. And it's not talking about the opportunities to kind of fill that box in. You know, there's a there's exactly. a couple of sentences in there saying, Oh, you know what, if no alternative presents itself. But there are alternatives. We've spoken to people who are saying actually this is a really good opportunity yeah. for publishers to re-emphasize their own first party data. In addition, Google is it's not in Google's interest to just completely cut this and you know, advertising all these advertisers out of the equation entirely, so they're doing things with you know, flocks, they're building out other um, opportunities for this. So it's not as though this is, we're not hurtling towards the edge of a cliff with no parachute or way to sort of like change course at all. It's that it's, it, it, obviously we're still over-reliant on Google and Facebook to some extent, but it's not this kind of apocalyptic scenario that it's being presented as. So that, that there's another theory that, um, and 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 I know a number of publishers have seen this starting to happen, is that when there aren't options available for this anymore, there's a, there's going to be a huge swing back to contextual advertising. So if you've got a bike and you want to sell a bike, you'll go to a cycling magazine where you know people are looking at bikes, and that really really benefits publishers. Me, who invented that business model? <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, <laughs> it's it's how, about it's about what, purchase intent, isn't it? Rather than sort of just like attention grabbing. Don't we have this the other week where we we were talking about advertising coming back after the pandemic, and there's that idea that people don't advertise when there's when there's not an intent. Mm-hmm. When yeah. people can't do something, they can't buy something. There's, there's no real point in advertising, and the whole premise of of that kind of retargeting is being being shown an ad for something that you've already bought. <laughs> That's insanity. Yeah. The, the the best person to read on this, and you know, I actually stopped reading them because I was exhausted, is the ad contrarian. Yeah. 
I had to stop reading him because he's so right, but it's exhausting that he's right. It's just such fury every time he writes. We maybe can't see what the solution to this is right now, or maybe we can see half a dozen solutions and not mm. know which one's going to win. Yeah. But there are solutions. Well, and the problem is that a lot of those solutions do place the power back in Google Sans just in a different way. Yeah, I think that's the thing. And I think that's the really important thing for publishers is that whatever whatever path you're charting for the future, it you need to be reliant on yourself for a lot of it. You know, Google might well come up with a wonderful solution, or Flocks might take off, or whatever else. But if you've got your if you if you're reliant on yourself, at least you know you sorted it for the next few years, and they're not going to suddenly turn around in sort of January next year and be like, "Ta-da! Here's a solution. Yeah. It fixes everything." At the risk of undercutting media voices nascent uh, <laughs> consultancy business this isn't that hard guys <laughs> have really really good content uh, and then you can have some reader revenue business going on and be clever about your advertising based on your own data so that you can target properly at your own audience and you've got a hell of a starting point. I cannot believe you've given that away free. Cannot believe it. <sighs> I know. And reg- I just like feel... definitely, definitely for local publishers, registration walls as well. Like get get to know who your readers actually are. Mm. Ta da! Ta da! <laughs> Fixed at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now on to the news in brief and big M and A news this week because Amazon has agreed to purchase MGM Studios in a deal worth. billion US dollars. This was mooted quite some time ago. Obviously, we've been hearing about, you know, moves by Amazon to purchase exclusive content for quite some time. uh, And the movie is going to help Prime Video compete with Netflix, Disney Plus and Apple TV. What was the sticking point with this one was James Bond, because the producers and kind of the the family owners of the Bond franchise, the Broccoli's, were... um, they effectively retain creative control over everything and distribution control as well. So Amazon Prime are now, they're still bound to release James Bond films into theatres, which was a real sticking point. But this has now gone through and unfortunately means that we're going to have to pick between a couple of different subscription services sooner rather than later. <laughs> I mean, that, that that was very neat. I can't. <laughs> and Reuters has postponed the launch of its, I think it was $34 a month mm-hmm. paywall. Following a dispute with financial data provider Infinitive over whether the move would breach a new supply agreement between the companies. So Reuters apparently gets half of its revenue from Refinitiv, who agreed to pay them $325 million a year until 2048. Uh, so, yeah, Seems that like one got a bit awkward. <laughs> yeah. Seems like quite the oversight on Reuters' part. <laughs> yeah. I've never Oops. heard from Refinitiv before. I'm, I'm, astonished that, yeah, I'm, just, I'm astonished that they account for that much of Reuters' revenue. Well, they're apparently a, a sort of Bloomberg competitor if you're in the mm. financial services space because they, they provide data and, and you know, Reuters News is a key part of that agreement. Um, I think they, they used to be part of Reuters, but Reuters then sold them off um, a couple of years ago. But it's, yeah, th- that, that's a big oops. Mm. Like, how do you how do you go ahead with paywall and then suddenly find, oh, no, actually, <laughs> that offends the guy that provides half our revenue? Uh, talking to price points. Mm. Okay, nice segue there. Twitter has listed a new paid for... Twitter Blue service on the app stores. But no one really knows what this is, right? Yeah, what's it going to look like? It's just listed, but there's there's no real detail. Could it be an undo button? (laughs) Could it be a come around, clean your kitchen type thing? Twitter Blue. (laughs) And Axios Local is set to generate up to $5 million this year, according to Adweek. 
So the program has attracted 350,000 subscribers in the past four months, and it's also expanding into eight new cities. That is significantly faster than I thought it was going to do. They've got a target for 50 cities mm. over 2022. Yeah. Yeah, they've gone hot and heavy on it's, this. If, it's, they, if they can move, if they, this is such a proof of concept, isn't it? If they can get this mm. right, then why can't the people who've been in kind of local news provision for for centuries? Because they, they started are from the wrong place. Mm. <laughs> and also, like Access's model is so stripped down, it's mm. it it gets to the heart of what people really want and need. And could this end up being a situation where? we then get one of the big newspapers by Axios for all of its local subscribers. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. My head just almost exploded. The amount of money that would take, that's insane. Do you think if we were doing this in five years' time, the New York Times will just own everything? Yeah. Okay. That'll make it easier. (laughs) Well, we'll be a subsidiary of the New York Times, so it'll be fine. Oh, that'd be cool. (laughs) And The Economist has launched the first online course of its executive education programme called Economist Education. So, It's a six-week course which will explore how politics, business and technology are changing the new global world order. Um, it'll oh. cost £1,475 if you want to go on it. Um, and it's being run by their journalists, which I think is quite smart. Uh, the uh, the world-beating New York Times... <laughs> is looking into a potential acquisition of The Athletic. Oh, this story. I'm just going to say this next little bit, and then I'm going to let Chris go off, okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, so, sources, I think, at Axios, has said that the Times have approached The Athletic following a report about a potential deal between The Athletic and Axios, which didn't go ahead in March. Right. That, that was really confusing. Yes. Well, okay, the, A, the irony that Axios is reporting on this is pretty pretty profound um also i f-ing knew i f-ing knew the athletic was a scam i always said it until they until they tricked me late last year a ponzi scheme again yeah we're another right. ponzi scheme we're just gonna offer steep discounts and free subscriptions and we're gonna get millions and millions of subscribers and we're gonna own all the content creators in that space oh, what, what, why don't we just try that we should try it, oh, but we need we, we need a niche. Billions of pounds. Well, that's true too. Yeah, venture capital funding. <laughs> but see, this is the thing now. We should pitch some VC guys and go. Look, it worked for the Athletic. They said they were never. They said they were going to buy up all the local news. They were going to outlast I, all the local news chains. I think what's annoying about this is the attitude that they brought to it. Mm. And we we kind of we were sort of nice to these guys after the pandemic and the sports shut down and they still grew their subscriptions and we're like oh yeah well done <laughs> but actually they're arrogant tech bros right yeah and i i was specifically very careful about what i called them now <laughs> um yeah they just come across as real i don't know tech bros mm. well, i for one welcome the new york times <laughs> overlords This week I spoke to Robbie Kelman-Baxter, an author and consultant, helping to develop membership and subscription models. Robbie's working with FIP on an online event focused on direct-to-consumer business. The agenda features publishers, but also consumer companies like Strava and Citizen M Hotels. I started by asking Robbie how she got started with membership and subscriptions. So I've been focused on subscription and membership models for the past 20 or so years 
starting uh, when I was working as a consultant. I was a general consultant and I had Netflix as a client. Um, and this was just after Netflix um, had gone public. They had a presence across the United States um, and were not global. And it was thrill still three DVDs out at a time. And I fell in love with their business model. I, I loved how they were focused on doing one thing really well for the customer on an ongoing basis. And I loved that they were getting recurring revenue in a predictable way. And I loved that they were designing all of their processes and systems and metrics around this approach to ongoing engagement with the customer. And as I was falling in love with Netflix, everybody else was too. And I started getting calls. I was an independent consultant. I was getting calls from people saying, hey, we want to be the Netflix of news. We want to be the Netflix of music. We want to be the Netflix of bicycles, dental pain management products, like you name it. Somebody wanted to Netflix it. And so I started thinking really hard about what does that mean? Um, what are the, what are the, the practices that can be shared across organizations? What are the questions organizations should ask themselves if they want to be like Netflix? And what does it mean when they say they want to be like Netflix? And in, in most cases, it meant, you know, closer to the customer, ongoing relationship, and recurring revenue. And so I've been focused on that area ever since. Um, I've written two books. The The first book, uh, The Membership Economy, came out in 2015. And I, I really wrote that book to explain to people what I was seeing, that this was a massive transformational trend that yeah. could be applied to virtually any kind of business, regardless of the size or industry. And people, I just felt like people weren't getting it. They would say, you know, it's not relevant to us. You know, we do, we, we work with, with advertisers. We um, sell transactionally. Uh, we're really big. We're really small. So it can't work for us. And so I, I wrote that book to make my case. Um, five years later, I don't have to make the case for organizations to consider subscription pricing. Um, but a lot of organizations are struggling to do it successfully. They're, mm -hmm. they're running into problems. You know, it used to work for us. We used to be able to get subscribers today. People don't want to subscribe. Um, we put out a subscription and nobody's signing up. Uh, we put out a subscription and the wrong people are signing up and they're canceling <sighs> right away. Um, and so this, you know, I wrote the forever transaction to help people at each phase of maturity in their own subscription journeys. So that's pretty much me. That's what I've been focused on, you know, for the last 20 years, uh, all things subscription, and more importantly, a membership mindset, a, a focus on the long term with, with organizations. So you were well ahead of the game as far as publishing and general media is concerned on this, this idea of direct to consumer revenue. But now you're working with FIP um, and you guys are doing a, an event in June, looking at how direct to consumer revenue models will become, they say, the primary source of revenue for media businesses. Do you think that's true? I think it could be. And, and here's why. If you, if you think about um, who the customer is, and this is really the important question. If, you're, if your customer is an advertiser, then your product is, you know, as people have said many times, it's the eyeballs. It's getting somebody connected to want to learn more about that company's products. Um, and there is a path around to that with content. But if you want to create content that is optimized for, for reader uh, learning, enjoyment, growth, um, entertainment, then you have to optimize around the reader. 
And we're seeing over and over again that consumers are very willing to pay for quality content. And what we're also seeing is that once they have a trusted relationship with with a company, with a with you know in this case with a media organization, they're more willing to buy other products and services that continue to support whatever their goal was. So if I come to your magazine because I have a hobby and you write about that hobby, um, the likelihood is I'm also going to be interested in your thoughts on products and services related to that hobby, travel related to that hobby, uh, expertise related to that hobby. So organizations that kind of flip their model and say, you know, we're focused on helping our our customers, our audience achieve their goals. And one of the ways we do that is through our content. Um, it kind of opens up a new way of thinking about your business strategy. I definitely get why for you, from a publisher's point of view, this is a great way to go. You've got, you know, that, that predictability of revenue. You've got a direct relationship. You've got brand extensions. Why do you think it works for customers? Why, why are people so keen on subscriptions? I'm so glad that you asked that <laughs> because it's the it's a key piece of the puzzle that I think a lot of organizations neglect, but it has to it has to be good for the customer and and here's why if you have a goal um, I always say you know uh, you have to have a forever promise with your with your customer with your subscriber so as long as you subscribe to my my organization to you know to my content. I promise that I will do everything I can to help you achieve your goal. So your goal might be to get the most enjoyment out of your basketball fandom, right? Your goal might be to understand the world around you so you can make better decisions. Your goal might be um, to be on the cutting edge of what's happening in my industry. Uh, And as an organization really focuses on that with a subscription, you actually start to see the behavior of that customer, of that subscriber. And so you're better able to plan for the future. You can see what, they, what they're using, what they're willing to pay for, what they're, what they're wanting more of. And so it gives you a really distinct advantage to the competition because you're better able to deliver on where that customer is going, which is really valuable for the customer. And you know, a really good example that I think you know, people don't usually think about in, in this you know, kind of conversation about subscription and media is Apple. Um, and I'm not talking about Apple Plus, their, their video streaming service, um, or even iTunes. I'm talking about their hardware and how for many years now, people will walk into an Apple store and they'll say, I'm an Apple person. I need a phone. What phone should I get? And then they'll come back and say, I'm an Apple person. I need a computer. What computer should I get? And then they'll come in and they'll say, I'm an Apple person. I need a printer. What printer should I get? And the Apple genius will say, Apple doesn't make print Apple doesn't make printers. And the and the and the fan, this 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 you know, person that has a forever transaction with Apple will say, Well then tell me where I should buy my printer because right. I'm an Apple person. Yeah. And and that's what we're talking about here, because that consumer says, I love Apple so much, I trust them. I know if I buy what Apple tells me to buy, everything will work together, everything will be easy and elegant, and I don't have to worry. So I'm going to go there first, and I'm going to buy what they tell me to buy, because I know that I can trust them. So it's that relationship that really is, is the key to it. Yeah. I, I mean, I was, I was really interested looking at the agenda um, for you for the FIP event is 
we get so used to seeing the same successful publishers come on and talk about what they've done. But you've got yeah. other people on there. You've got Strava. You've got Citizen M Hotels. Why? Why are they on the agenda? <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. One of the reasons, um, you know, I, that that I got involved with this with this project was to bring different voices together. And you know, that's always been my approach when I think about subscriptions: is what can you know, the world of heavy equipment learn from the world of professional services? What can, you know, the software world learn from the entertainment world or the hospitality world? And in this particular case, what we're trying to do is bring together, as you said, some new voices who have something to share and who honestly probably have something to learn as well from the media companies. In the, in the case of the companies you mentioned, uh, Citizen M is a you know hospitality company. Uh, they have hotels. Um, they have two different subscription membership offerings that they launched during the pandemic that I think are are really interesting. Um, one of them focused on you know this kind of uh, you know global digital citizen who travels the world mm-hmm. and works remotely, um, and then the other one is for you know a, a professional who's you know traveling for work. But both of them are really focused on knowing who who their ideal member is. So they're not, you know, most hotels are like, you know, bring your babies, come for your honeymoon, come from your work trip, you know, we'll we'll do it all. They're they only are focused on business travel, yeah. and only kind of in a certain, you know, sort of a digital person who travels a lot, um, and. They came up with these two these two memberships because they're so focused on understanding this traveler's unique needs, and um, you know so that's why I mean that's why uh, why uh, Citizen M Strava, uh, you know, is the world's biggest community for athletes. Uh, you can you can keep track of and compare yourself with your friends uh, on your your runs, your walks, your cycling. Um, it's a great way to to keep track of of your routes. Um, your your pace, uh, you know, a whole bunch of different features. Um, last May, they went hard for subscription. They they really doubled down on their core members who they know incredibly well. They put up a paywall um, almost overnight. A lot of controversy when it happened, but it's been tremendously successful because they're so laser focused on providing the greatest value to their most engaged members. Um, and it's it's ended up being incredibly well received, and it's just a really interesting example of you know you might not think of it as being having much in common with media, but you know they have a paywall, uh, they have subscribers, they have content. It's a different kind of content because uh, it's you know it's other people's and your own um, history, your record of of where you've been and how fast you were when you were there. Um, but they've been really really thoughtful and creative in balancing, you know, subscription and ad revenue or sponsor revenue and in how they think about what goes behind the paywall um, and in how they communicate that message, you know, confidently, transparently, um, honestly to their community. So so those are two, I think, really interesting uh, companies that are going to, I think we're actually pretty lucky to, to have them uh, and, and, and very senior people coming to speak. I actually have a Strava subscription and I use the Citizen M Hotel in Glasgow when I go to Glasgow. So I saw, I felt very seen when I saw this agenda. <laughs> I thought it was great. Oh, good. I'm, I'm looking forward to those days. Just looking back at, at those kind of companies, 
Uh, and you mentioned Apple, and I, you know that the, the sort of community around Apple products is legendary. How is media doing in compared to some of these other industries when it comes to that sort of direct to consumer situation? You know, I think there's there's a huge range um, across media companies. I, I work with a lot of them. You know, I, I do a lot of speaking, but I also work as a consultant with with many organizations, and I, I see such a range between. You know, certainly the the well funded leaders, um, mm. uh, you know, let's say the the ones that you, the, the usual suspects, the the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, yeah. Post, um, you know, the Financial Times, you know, and 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 then some of the hyper local ones, our media, I think is really interesting, and what what they've done at a at a very local level, um, you know, there's there's a lot of really good examples um, that are doing it well. I think there are also organizations that are struggling to catch up a lot of times because they've been straddling the fence. Um, They're sort of unwilling to really commit to subscription because I think committing to subscription, committing to readers uh, and weaning yourself from advertisers is very scary because you're giving up revenue and not knowing if the revenue is going to be made up on the other side. And it requires more than just slapping a subscription price onto your product. It, you know, the next thing that happens is you start looking at the content and saying what content drives conversion, which articles drive conversion, what topics are people willing to pay for? Um, I was talking to a business publication last night and they were saying that for, for a long time, their newsroom was very focused on clicks and reads and, you know, they would have articles like what's the best pizza in your market, right? Because that a lot of people want to read that, but nobody's going to, pay to access that article people are going to pay for the article about you know this office tower is going up in your neighborhood and these are the companies that are moving in you know so that you could maybe you know go market to them or go complain to your city councilman or what have you Um, that's the kind of information that people are willing to pay for so it changes the newsroom as well and I think those are some of the issues is, you know, the, the organizations that are doing this the best are thinking holistically about content, about the di- digital packaging of the product. So it's not just about the content. It's about how easy is it for me to access the content? How easy is it for me to find the content I need um, wherever I am? How easy is it for me to, to personalize it so that it's useful to me? And that's part of the product. That's not a supporting function. That's core. And it requires a different org structure. And I think for organizations to take that leap requires some bravery. And it's it's a big risk, a real risk for, for many organizations. One of the things that I've always not struggled with, but I can see as a major challenge is this idea of marketing a subscription product where the content that you're actually going to charge people for is behind the paywall. So how do you sell that to people? Yeah. Is there is there is there some clever tricks there that you can that help you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really good question. So, you know, there's there's two there's 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 many many different approaches, but I'll, I'll talk about two um, in the realm of free. Uh, there's a free trial, and there's freemium. Uh, a free trial is a small taste of the best you have because as you said they don't know what it is they don't know what it tastes like um, or they don't believe it's as good as you say um, so for example when you know I've, I've known the Strava team since the very beginning and when they first explained what they were doing it took me a long time to understand it it was just kind of 
you know, it was just very different. So you had to see it to, to understand it. Um, so a free trial comes in really handy there. Um, it's a small taste of the best you've got. Uh, I don't know. I don't believe that your articles are better or deeper or more thoughtful than, you know, these articles I can get for free. Um, and you say, well, Robbie, read a couple. You'll see they're just a lot better. And I say, oh, you're right. I really prefer those. Okay, I'll subscribe. Um, freemium, on the other hand, if, if free trial is a, a tiny taste of your filet mignon, um, freemium is hamburger forever. Um, you can fill up on it. It's available on an ongoing basis. You can have a freemium subscription versus a premium subscription. That might be limited by volume, like you can have 10 articles a month. Yeah. Um, it might be limited by type of article, right? 20% of our content is in front of the paywall. The good stuff, 80% is behind the paywall. Um, it might be uh, that you get the content, but you don't get the features. So you, maybe you can't save things or you can't download things or you have to deal with you know navigating ads and videos that you have to watch in order to earn the right to enjoy the content. Um, freemium is great as a way of building habits. So as you said, you know, if somebody doesn't really know what's behind the wall, you go through freemium, maybe it's ad supported, maybe it's one of those other approaches. And at some point you say, you know what, I'm actually using this a lot. I should probably pay for the full set of features since I'm using it. Um, the other times when freemium is useful is uh, if there's a viral component. So like Hotmail was back in the day that, you know, I send you an email and at the bottom it says, I did this email with my free Hotmail account. And you say, that's interesting. And you click on it and you sign up yeah. for a Hotmail account. Yeah. Um, that's a reason to give something away for free. And then the other reason to give something away for free is if there's a network effect, meaning that each new person that joins creates more value for the other people that are paying. And that's like what LinkedIn does, right? You and I might not pay for our LinkedIn membership, but if we weren't there putting our content out every day, you know, describing mm. our, our resumes and our backgrounds, it wouldn't be valuable for the job seekers and recruiters yeah. and salespeople who are trying to connect with us. And those are the people who are willing to pay. So there doesn't have to be a dollar value on every customer. Sometimes it's just the fact that they're participating. Well, it, you can still put a dollar value on them, but it's not direct revenue. So you could say, mm. like, I think LinkedIn is very clear on the value of each new free member. Um, and, and what they bring indirectly to the ecosystem. But they recognize that there's value in people who are never going to pay out of their own pocket being part of the community. This is an impossible question, but is there any way to sum that up as the sort of core to any strong direct-to-consumer offer? Is the one thing it's got to have? I think you have to have a really clear promise that you're making to a really clear target customer that you know very well. And you have to know that customer and the journey that they're on that you're a part of. Like, I'm buying this business newspaper because I'm trying to be successful in my career as an XYZ. Um, or I'm buying this magazine or I'm subscribing to this magazine because I love fashion and I want to be current and I want to look stylish. Um, if you understand who your audience is and you understand the promise you're making to them, it allows you to optimize your offering around them. It allows you to keep them for a long time, build loyalty and trust and expand the relationship over time. So if you are moving from 
you know, an indirect, intermediated kind of model to a direct-to-consumer model, the most important thing is that you really get clear on who you're serving and what it is you're promising them. And if you stay true to that, I think everything else should fall into place. Do you think people take a long enough view of, of these models? You know, your 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 yeah. new book, <laughs> your new book is the forever transaction. Um, so that's the clues in the name, really. Do you think publishers in particular take a long enough term view on it? Again, I think some of them do. Um, I think, and and in terms of long view, there's there's two different ways I think about it. One of them is the forever transaction. That is, when you sign me up as a new subscriber. You know, you, you're not going to get all the revenue possible in that first transaction. A lot of mm-hmm. businesses are very transactionally focused. Like, how can we get the most money out of them when we've got them at the checkout, right? At the mm-hmm. point of sale. Uh, let's try to lock them in for three years. Let's try to, you know, yeah. get them to, you know, do you want fries with that? Like that kind mm-hmm. of a mentality. Um, and in this case, you really have to be thinking, I want them to want to stay over time. So I have to treat them a little bit differently at the beginning um, because I'm building for the long time. I have to optimize my product over time because they're that's part of what they're paying me for is continued improvement, enhancement, even without charge. Like somebody asked me the other day, we're spending a lot of money to develop a new feature. Should we charge extra for it on our subscription and you know in most cases the answer is no that's part of what you're subscribing for is a continually improving offering but the other thing when you talked about long term that my mind went to is the leadership of the organization needs to take a long view if they're making this transition Um, for a large mature company it can take four to six years to move from a transactional episodic model or an advertising driven model to a subscription driven model. Once you take into account all of the experimentation, um, all of the new skills that the organization is going to need, the new tech stack the organization is going to need. Um, and then of course the time for those, you know, repeated small payments to add up to those big, big, you know, one-time payments. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it requires a tremendous level of patience for the leadership team and the investors. One one sort of quick question. Is membership different from subscription? Because we see both. But, uh, you know, are, are they actually different? Does it matter? Well, I, I think they're different and, and I think it matters. And there's, there's, you know, it's always useful to have, you know, definitions and a clear lexicon. Um, for me, a subscription is a pricing tactic right? We are charging subscription fees in exchange for this value. And they're recurring. They're usually the same amount over time. Um, But it's a tactic. It's not a strategy. You can't say our big strategy is subscription. Um, It's how you do the subscription and in service of what. Um, Membership also, you know, membership is a funny word. The way I use it, a membership mindset, and when I think about the membership economy, it's about organizations moving from this very transactional mindset to a mindset that really treats the customer like a member and optimizes around the long-term relationship, optimizing around lifetime customer value um, and understanding what it's going to take to continue the relationship over time. That's how I think about membership and subscription. I know that for many people, there is a thing, a product that they call a membership. And usually what people mean by that when they say we have a subscription and we have a membership usually the subscription is 
fixed deliverables on a monthly, weekly, or annual cadence in exchange for a fixed payment, whereas membership is often a bundle of benefits that you're entitled to use at your discretion um, as a result of a payment that you've made or joining an organization. So in, in that case, some people would call like Amazon Prime a membership because it, it entitles you to a bundle of benefits. And many of those benefits have no value if you don't shop there, right? Mm-hmm. So you pay for the privilege of having a better shopping experience. Um, this is this is in the context of the free shipping, for example, as yep. opposed to the access to their movies. We could talk about this all day. <laughs> but I guess <laughs> the best thing is for people just to tune into FIP's event in June. Yeah, it runs over two weeks. Um, for several hours each day, there's a ton of of content, both live content. So, you know, I hope that people come live so they can ask questions and, you know, provide feedback and comments and kind of create a little bit of, uh, you know, community conversation in the chat. Yeah. Um, and then there's a whole lot of uh, pre-recorded uh, stuff that we're that we're making available um, from the day we open the conference. A lot of new, you know, interviews and presentations from some really innovative um, D2C practitioners. Excellent. We'll get a link. Uh, we'll get a link to the event on the show notes. Uh, our last question is always the same. We always ask our guests for a media recommendation, either a book or an article or a podcast or a movie, just something that you've really loved and you want to pass on. Professionally, I would suggest the book Customer Centricity and the Customer Centricity Playbook by uh, Professor Peter Fader of the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania. It's, you know, the, the Customer Centricity Playbook, I think it's 104 pages. It's oh, terrific. Nice. It's all about... <laughs> We, we all love a short book, don't we? My kind of book. <laughs> um, and then personally, I just watched Girls 5 Eva. This is like from the sublime to the ridiculous, but I really did enjoy it. <laughs> it's just funny and there's great music and, you know, very guilty pleasure. So we've been listening really hard to what Robbie was saying and we're focusing our efforts on our monthly subscription option if you'd like to support Media Voices. Go to ko-fi.com slash media voices and you can sign up for a monthly subscription or if you don't like us that much you can just give us a one-off tip no tote bags yet unfortunately i think we should do a i think we should do a devil's avocado mug yeah that's that is a really good idea media voices, <laughs> devil's avocado mug. i'm cutting that out of the i'm cutting that out of this episode because that's that is a great idea and if you're desperate for more Media Voices content, then you can join the influx of new subscribers we've had to our daily newsletter. So that contains four of the most important media stories of the day as curated by the Media Voices team. Um, we try and provide a little bit of kind of semi-intelligent commentary on it. Um, and there's also a link to our well, latest episode in that. Um, so yeah, that's just the top four stories of the day. No overwhelm. And that's every day in your inbox. You can sign up to that on our website, voices.media. And you can also look out for our latest conversations episode this Wednesday, which features insight from Eurosport and Pod Install about how you can transform your evergreen content into podcasts with all the prestige and revenue that comes along with that. But until then, please do tell anybody who you think might like a weekly media roundup to listen to Media Voices and stay safe. <laughs>